every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Heart living is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona, as we stop in here at the Urban Farm. If you'd like to join the conversation, talking fruit trees today with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm. It's one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. When the audio attendant answers, just hit 1 to bypass the message, and it'll put you right into the studio. You can text questions to 411-923-or-email-info-at-rosieonthehouse.com. And I'll tell you, Farmer Greg, I just got back from the land of fruits and nuts, as they call it, the San Joaquin Valley of California, the pretty part of California, just miles and miles of agriculture and trees and pistachios and almonds and corn and alfalfa and i just wow i mean forever mm-hmm. and uh you know always observe something that's gonna uh come back and apply to the little modest orchard at our whitman plantation and mm-hmm. uh, but i will tell you it it really it really drives home uh, a point because you're out there and you see all this great production but you, you start seeing all these little abandoned farmhouses of, mm-hmm. of people abandoning California. It's like this is so much of our foods grown here. And, you know, the transportation, there's fires all over the state. I mean, it was you, you could smell smoke. And we were hundreds of miles from uh, any active fire and, uh, you know, driving across the desert. And you've got the train that derailed over the uh, the b- bridge that. In Tempe? Uh, in Tempe. You know, just all the transportation and what it requires to get that that produce all the way to your table. It really just drove home the importance of what we do here Saturday morning, teaching Growing everyone, our own? Growing our own. Yes. <laughs> well, and I've been saying this for years, that, you know, the infrastructure and the and it's, it's waning. And I've also been saying that, you know, we have a three-day supply of food in any grocery store. And, you know, people would kind of look at me funny pre-six months ago. And then all of a sudden in March, we go into grocery stores and all the grocery store shelves are empty. You know, it's like, all right, we got to take a pause here and start thinking about how to grow our own food. And we can do that in relatively small spaces. We've got at the Urban Farm, we're working on a third of an acre. Yep. And over 100 fruit trees. Uh, About 80 fruit trees. Okay. Yeah, about 80 fruit trees. Now, I do have flood irrigation. Uh, so, you know, if you're not on flood irrigation, putting 80 fruit trees on a quarter of an acre probably is not a good idea, but you could put three or four or five or six fruit trees, uh, strategically placed on your space, uh, on a third of an acre, a quarter and of that's, an acre. Uh, you know, one tree and the right tree mm-hmm. will produce more than you you could probably eat in the season. Exactly. Exactly. I have a uh, peach tree out front. Uh, my desert gold peach gives me about, I don't know, 50 to 70 pounds of peaches in a three-week period. That's a lot of peaches. <laughs> that Break out the canner. Exactly. You, you couldn't eat that many in that period of time. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we're going to start today by talking about how to kill your fruit trees. Oh, I can do Wait. that. <laughs> right, Rosie? You got, the, you got the right man on the job <laughs> right here, buddy. All right. So there's so many, and I, you know, I've been doing this now. I've been growing fruit trees here in the valley since 1974, and I've been teaching people how to grow fruit trees here in the valley for almost 30 years. 
and I call it my urban farm fruit tree education program. So you can imagine I get, just like you guys, you get phone calls and emails, right? I get phone calls and emails and people send me a picture of a, of a peach tree or an apple tree in the middle of their yard and say, oh my gosh, Greg, it died. Why did it die? And they put it in the, gra- in the middle of a gravel yard with block walls all the way around it and one drip emitter on it. And, you know, I just how long would you live out there like that? (laughs) That's exactly what I tell them. I say, go out this time of year and stand in your yard in the, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon and say, how long do you want to live here? (laughs) So we have to do a lot to make sure that we assure that the trees make it. And so that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today. But so planting a and I have solutions for all of these, but planting a fruit tree or really any tree in gravel or dirt with concrete all around it, it's surefire you're going to kill the tree. Or if you plant it in Bermuda grass and just, you know, let the grass take over around the tree, that's probably going to kill the tree. You have a funny look on your face there, Romy. What's with the grass? Does it... What's with the grass? The grass outcompetes the tree. So if you're going to plant in a, in a grassy area, you just have to cut back a basin six feet cut the grass out, put a basin in, put the tree in the middle, and then do my 6-6 six, six rule, which we're going to talk about here in a little while. So the grass can outcompete the tree. Absolutely. Okay. I see it all the time in my neighborhood, walking my neighborhood this morning. I saw some, uh, some fruit trees that were in the middle of a lawn, and the grass was growing up around them, and, and uh, they just take the nutrients away, and the, tri- the trees suffer. Hmm. Okay. And then uh, drip irrigation. If you have any of your trees on drip irrigation they're probably not going to make it because drip irrigation puts a drip emitter up next to the tree trunk one gallon per hour and it comes on for an hour every morning or every two mornings or three mornings and it just it doesn't give it enough water and it gives it all in one place and that's why in this time of year during the storms we see all kinds of trees that have just fallen over so and you you can do a, a lot more with drip. You can have multiple emitters. Uh-huh. You can have ones that go up to 10 gallons an hour. Yep. You can set it for multiple hours. We have, uh, a, we have a drip ring. Our drip rings have uh, 18 half-gallon-per-hour emitters on them in a circle. So you just plug that into your system. And, and then so that what that does is it evenly spreads the water out in the basin, which is real important. So you can you can make it work with oh, drip. Yes. It's just a lot of extra work. What would you if you were starting from scratch, planting new, and you didn't you weren't on an irrigated property? Mm-hmm. What, what would you go with? Like the old fashioned, or not old fashioned, but the the old school bubblers. Bubblers are best, absolutely. If you don't have irrigation, bubblers are best. And I usually like to tell people to put two bubblers in the basin. And then, uh, so watering, we usually talk this down about this down the road, but we're on water now, so let's chat about it. Watering is really, really important. Overwatering a tree, the damage looks the same as underwatering a tree. So often what happens is people are, you know, sticking the hose or your bubblers or, you know, on the tree, and um, they think it needs to be watered once every two or three days. And I didn't make this up. Fruit trees get watered once a month in the winter and twice a month in the summer. Where did I get that? Flood irrigation. My flood irrigation, that's what it does, and my trees absolutely thrive. So what I, try, what I teach people to do is set your, if, even if you don't have flood irrigation, set your trees up in basins with woody mulch around them and then deep water them once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer. 
It's like a mantra, once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer. And um, what that does is that deep waters them. So if you are watering your tree and you're watering it every three or four days and it starts to droop, what are you going to think? I got to add more water. You got to add more water. Exactly. So then what people do is they add more water and it droops a little more and they add more water. And before long, you've killed the tree because you've overwatered it. And more often than not, people overwater their trees to death. So um, I have this whole planting methodology in my fruit tree program. It basically looks like this. You plant citrus in October, November. You plant deciduous in January and early February. And you during that period of time, you water them once a month. When it gets hot on April 15th-ish, you start watering it twice a month. So by the time June 1st hits, when it gets really hot, if your tree starts drooping, you water it on June 1st. And if it starts drooping by June 8th, 9th, or 10th, you know you're not overwatering it. So you need to give a little more water. And the thing is, if you plant them right and if you nurture them right, per what I've discovered over the past 20 years, um, you may have to water your trees more than once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer, the first year. But after the first year, you're golden. I've seen it over and over and over again. So that's the the three ways to kill it. Drip irrigation, grass, yep. and dirt and gravel. Yep, exactly. And so today what we're talking about is your three keys to successful fruit tree uh, growing in, in the valley. The, um, and number one is what you need to know before you buy your trees. Uh, number two is planting uh, and, you know, planting for our extreme environment here. And number three is making sure your trees thrive in our environment. Uh, so key one, what you need to know before you buy your trees. Do you know that you can go into most nurseries and every big box store and they will sell you a fruit tree that will never make fruit? In Arizona. In Arizona. <laughs> it, well, it might... It, it might in a other climate or higher altitudes, but exactly in, in, for the desert floor, Tucson, Phoenix, it it takes special trees. You can't walk into a Costco or a Home Depot and trust that the trees you're going to buy are going to give you fruit. And when you're buying a fruit tree, you're buying it with the hope and praise that you're going to get fruit off of it, right? And most fruit trees don't start producing in the first year. So by the time you figure out that, you know, this isn't one that's going to work, you're a couple of years into it and you've got a, a connection to the tree and you don't, you know, the last thing you want to do is start over. Exactly. Plus, so I tell people all the time, it's okay to experiment if you know you're experimenting. I experiment with fruit trees all the time, but I know I'm experimenting. If you walk into Costco, I was at Costco earlier this year, and of of, of the deciduous trees, those are the kind of trees. I didn't even know you could get trees at Costco. I know, right? Of, of the deciduous trees at Costco, um, there were like five or six varieties. It was later in the season, and four of them would never make fruit here in the valley. And, and, it's, and we'll talk about what what it is Farmer Greg can identify quickly to know that it is not a something that would do well in this environment. Uh has to do with chill hours, but we're going to take a quick break. one 767 4348 That's one 1-888-ROSIE4U. When the auto attendant answers, just hit number one to bypass that, and that'll put you right in the studio. Brown and orange, brown and orange. All right, Farmer Greg, 
Where are we at? Chill hours. Chill hours. Oh, yeah. So the things you need to know before you buy your fruit tree. Chill hours is one of them. We get approximately 350 hours of chill. Chill is anything under about 39 degrees here in the de- in the low desert. Um, I've recently, in the past year, since we just finished our hottest month ever, uh, I've kind of been tweaking that down a little bit to 300 hours of chill. So if you walk up to that... Uh, tree and look at the tag and on the tag it doesn't say how many chill hours are required do not buy that tree i was at a big box store about three years ago and do you know that there are there are hundreds of different varieties of peaches do you know that i didn't know hundreds of yeah there's hundreds wow. of different varieties of peaches that grow around grow around the world there's about a, a dozen that will produce here in the low desert and so i was at this big box store and I walked up to this peach, and the tag, I read the tag, it said, peach. That was it. No <laughs> variety, no chill hours, no nothing. That peach will likely, you know, there's, there's a likelihood it will never, never make peaches here. So, chill hours is really important. Look at the tag. If it doesn't say, uh, you know, 200 hours chill or 500 hours chill, if it says 500 hours chill, don't buy it. I know, I've tried. <laughs> because you're never going to get fruit. So that's number one thing about um, making sure that you need to know before you buy your trees. The number two thing you need to know is about root stock. So these days, most fruit trees are grafted together. Take They take a root stock that does really well in desert soils and put it on top of, say, a peach tree, a desert gold peach. And so Nima Guard and a desert gold peach is going to do really well here. Nemo Guard on my row, or I'm sorry, uh, Desert Gold on my row is probably not going to do really well here. So there's very specific root stocks for here in the low desert. Now, we all have smartphones, right? We all have smartphones these days. If you're standing there at one of these stores and there is a root stock tag on the tree, use your smartphone and see if it's the kind of root stock that does well here in the low desert. If there's not a rootstock on the tree, don't buy the tree. This is this goes for citrus. It goes for deciduous trees, apples, peaches, apricots, plums, those kinds of things. So you have to know what the rootstock is and if it does well here in the desert. Now, I have an education program or fruit tree education program. We got you covered on all that. So we do low chill. We do on the right rootstocks. The third thing you need to know, and this is something I discovered a few years ago, and that is when does the fruit ripen? So if you're planting a peach or an apple or an apricot or plum or grapes or berries in your yard, and they are ripe on the tree after about July 1st, what I have found with many decades of experience on this is that the fruit just cooks on the tree. It just... (laughs) You know, if, if you have an August peach, I did this, I tried. I planted an August pride peach a few years ago and the peaches never matured and they just, they were small golf balls and they just fell off the tree and didn't do anything. So the three things that you absolutely have to know is how many chill hours you have here in the low desert, I'd say 300. So you need to make sure on your deciduous trees, this does not count for citrus, on your deciduous trees, they're less than 300 hours of chill. You need to make sure that they're on the right rootstock and you need to make sure that they ripen at the correct time, which is before July 1st. And on those chill hours, there also be where you're talking about the 
the, the chill hours and the rootstock. It should say the nursery as well. And there's two predominant ones that are pretty common around here that both come over from California that are pretty good. If if it's Dave Wilson or Ellie Cook, those are... Yeah, and unfortunately, Ellie Cook is no longer in business. They went out of business a couple of years ago. Um, but Dave Wilson, Dave Wilson trees are good. You just have to make sure because Dave Wilson sells high-chill tre- high trees. They also sell trees on all kinds of different kinds of rootstock. So you have to make sure that you're getting the correct ones for our low desert. So... Um, so those all, are, all of a sudden, I'm beginning to realize why I've never had a fruit tree ever do one thing. <laughs> the only fruit tree I've ever seen survive in my yard is the one I have cut to the ground uh-huh. and poured root and stump killer down its throat <laughs> by the gallon. It's a pomegranate tree I cannot kill. kill it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. and, and pomegranates do well here and i did not know that about ellie cook that's a shame they were mm-hmm. again a, another example out of visalia california yeah since They're 1944 huge. they'd been around yep. and just gone yeah mm. yeah it was really sad a couple of years ago because it really um it really took out some of our uh, baseline trees that we can no longer get which is unfortunate plus the other challenge that we have is we only have one commercial grower of citrus in the state period it's sunset citrus nursery down in yuma um you know there's greenfield citrus they're great they're not a commercial grower but if you you know you can always check with uh, greenfield citrus they're out in mesa uh but that really puts us the nurseries in a pinch because especially the past six months citrus has not been available to buy from our wholesaler and because of the quarantines that we have around the citrus psyllid um Nobody will ship in from California, and that's that's a that's something different than the quarantine we're in right now. This is a this is a citrus quarantine for exactly. this insect that um, has has started to populate right uh, around Florida, California. We ha- haven't. I think there was one they found in Yuma, but they had that one lockdown <laughs> contained and yeah, some some sick. Uh, what what what's the insect? Citrus psyllid. Citrus psyllid. Yeah, Asian citrus psyllid. More talking fruit trees here with Farmer Greg at Rosie on the house. We're making our way through the keys to success, and so we're going to talk about proper planting for the environment. How to how to put that in the ground where you've got what what was your stat about the organic less than one percent organic matter in our dirt? In our dirt. Yep. Exactly. Here this morning at my house, Rosie on the house, with Greg Peterson from the Urban Farm, talking about what we need to do to make sure our fruit and nut trees produce on the valley desert floor. But I want to take a little intermission. We'll get right back to Greg. But I want to recruit the Arizona Rosie on the House listeners to help Arizona wildlife. We are in a very peculiar uh, extended drought situation. And Arizona Game and Fish has a campaign going right now where you can all help the Arizona wildlife. So to help me introduce this campaign, I've I've invited uh, Arizona Game and Fish Public Information Officer, Mr. John Trewaller, in to join us and talk a little bit about a campaign called Send Water. Good morning, John. Thanks for taking the time. 
Uh, good morning, Rosie. Thanks for having me. Why don't you talk a little bit about what y'all are trying to do with this Send Water campaign? Yeah, so right now we know from living in Arizona, right, it's hot, it's dry. We haven't seen much rain at all. And our Send Water efforts are in full force right now um, to get life-saving water to wildlife in Arizona. So we, every year, maintain and manage 3,000 water catchment sites across the state of Arizona. And normally these sites are self-sustainable, right? They can be self-sufficient. They collect rainwater. They provide water to wildlife. But in the hot, dry summer months, like we're in obviously right now, and when we're not getting that rain, they don't fill up with water. So it's on us to make sure that we fill them up with water. And sometimes that's via truck. In some cases, these are very remote locations that we have to bring in helicopters to fill these uh, sites up with water just to make sure that the wildlife out there have this water. Because if we didn't do this, these water sites would dry up. And unfortunately, we would see uh, wild animals die due to dehydration. So this is an expensive effort. It's a very manpower intensive effort. So we're very grateful to Arizonans that step up and help donate to this. People, a lot of people don't realize Arizona Game and Fish doesn't receive any Arizona tax dollars. We're a self-funded agency, primarily through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. So when the public steps up and helps us and donates to our campaign, it really helps us offset costs and really helps us serve the more than 800 wild species that call Arizona home. So what I want the Arizona listeners to hear is Arizona Game and Fish is not government tax supported. What I want the Arizona listeners to hear is that Arizona Game and Fish needs to deliver about 800 thousand gallons of water to 3,000 different water catchment basins throughout Arizona. And every one of you can help with a gift of $25 or $50. And you do it with your smartphone by texting to send water to 41444. And I would love John to call me on Monday morning and say, wow, we saw a nice little spike on Saturday morning. Well, we'd, we'd love to have that. We're so grateful for uh, anyone in Arizona that's uh, able and willing to contribute to this cause. You know, it's, it's a cause that's obviously near and dear to our heart, and it's a cause that's, that's our mission to conserve and protect wildlife in Arizona. So, yeah, it's super easy to donate. You know, on average, Rosie, it costs us about a million dollars annually just to uh, support these water catchments. We don't want to be in the water hauling business, but we are because we're in this major drought and we're in this hot summer. So, like you said, you can text send water, that's all one word, send water to 41444, or you can also go to sendwater.org. And that's uh, our website, and you can go there and donate, and you can also learn more about our life-saving water efforts that we're doing. Delivering water to wildlife. I saw just recently where a electronic monitor was indicating one particular water catchment was dry. Romy, they had fishing game guys. How would you, how would you like in 115-degree weather <laughs> to have to put a couple pipe wrenches, 15 feet of PVC Schedule 40 pipe, some PVC glue, enough water for you to drink, to hike in and to hike out and go fix this. When they got to the water tankment, there was a small herd of bighorn sheep yeah. just sitting there waiting. 
<laughs> saying, hey, no, you're, this is supposed to have water right. in here, guys. <laughs> yeah, so what happened was we have uh, solar-powered elect- uh, remote water sensors in some of our really rural water catchment sites. So this situation that you're talking about happened in the Chaco Mountains near Yuma, and uh, we got an alert from this sensor that uh, our tank was empty, that, that there was no water. So obviously being concerned, uh, we had a team, an, an Arizona Game and Fish team, went and hiked in. This is typically a, a remote site that we deliver via hil- water via helicopter. Uh, it's about a two-mile hike just you know, in, uh, in extremely hot temperatures, very steep terrain just to access this. So when our team <laughs> hiked in and got there, uh, they discovered an empty water catchment, and there were about 15 bighorn sheep just standing by waiting for this water. This is where they go to drink water. This is where they go to hydrate. And it turns out there was a broken pipe, and our crew was able to thankfully fix that pipe, you know, diagnose that problem, and get that water working again so that these sheep, these bighorn sheep, could drink. Jeez. But if we had not gone in when we did... Um, and we had not had that sensor, the next time we may have visited that catchment maybe would have been two weeks from that day. Oh, and, mercy. Uh, we may have found, you know, unfortunately, dead wildlife near that water catchment. That's just how critical this water is to these animals. This is what they're drinking to stay alive Absolutely. in the desert. Absolutely. And it's just one of the things Arizona Game and Fish does to manage over eight hundred species of wildlife here in the state of arizona folks i can't encourage you enough text send water to 41444 make a contribution of what you can afford and let's get the water out to the wildlife where they need it these are three thousand water catchments they started constructing them back in the 40s they've been spread out throughout arizona to stabilize the wildlife population. John Trewaller of Arizona Game and Fish, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rosie. Pleasure to be here. All right, man. Have a great weekend. Let's get back to Mr. Greg Peterson, Urban Farms on Fruit and Nut Trees. I'm a specialist in killing them. Greg's a specialist in having them thrive. And we'll pick up with proper preparation for planting. And for some reason, your mic's not on. My mic's not on. There you are. Oh, there I am. I'm over here talking at you. Nobody's (laughs) listening. So first of all, I want to thank you for doing that segment. That was an amazing segment. While you all were doing it, I was on my cell phone. I donated 50 bucks. I challenge you all to do the same thing. Let's just fill up that account. That's really, really important. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for bringing that on. So um, where were we going Romy? <laughs> Putting a tree in the, in oh, the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So planting for success. Um, how much time do we have? Do we have at least a couple hours? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first thing I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you dig your holes. And I discovered last year a new way of planting. And you want to plant in a square hole, not a round hole. That, that helps the trees not get root bound in the hole. There's a whole lot of technology behind that. But do a square hole. Of all the years we've done this, I don't know that I've ever heard or retained hearing you say that. That's new. It was one of those things. So I started planting fruit trees in the valley in the 1970s. And this guy online last year started talking about square holes. And it's like, uh, Greg, why didn't you think of that? 
it makes perfect sense because round holes, the trees can get uh, root bound in the hole because the roots will go around the circular, you know, the circumference of the hole. If you put a square hole in, the roots won't go around in a circle. They go in a square. And when they hit the corner, they'll keep growing straight out. Interesting. Exactly. That's what I thought. So what about an octagon? Well, that could work you too. More edges, just not round, <laughs> just or a polygon. Not... Oh, there we go. We're gonna start getting mathy here. <laughs> so start with a square hole. Okay. When you dig your hole, I always suggest that people do a perk test. That means that you dig your hole and stick a hose in it and see how long it takes to drain out. It should drain out within three minutes to a couple of hours. If you still have water standing in twenty-four or forty-eight hours, you got a problem. You got to dig a big, big a dig, dig a bigger hole. Um, bigger or deeper? Yes. Both? Yes. Got it. Exactly. And as you mentioned before the break, we have less than 1% organic matter in our soil. Now, your job as a grower in the desert, or really a grower anywhere, is to grow healthy soil first. When you have healthy soil, you're going to get healthy plants. There are five components of healthy soil. Component number one is dirt. And like I said, less than 1% organic matter in our, in our soil, in our dirt here, that doesn't make for a happy, healthy growing space. So five components of healthy soil, dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. The good news is, is that your fix for unhealthy soil is to add organic matter. And we add organic matter in two ways when planting a tree. When you dig your hole, I want you to take 60% of the, I'm sorry, 40% of the dirt that's in the hole and put it in the wheelbarrow. And then I want you to supplement that with some kind of planting mix. Tanks has Farmer Greg's planting mix. That's perfect for trees. But some kind of composted organic matter, it needs to be fully composted, goes in the wheelbarrow. So you got the 60, the 40, 60% uh, compost planting mix, 40% dirt. You mix it up really good. Then I'm going to have you add three things. I'm going to have you add mycorrhiza, an ounce of that. That is life that goes in the soil. We have that on our on our website, along with most everything I talk about. I want you to add a pound of azomite. Azomite is like a micronutrient vitamin pill for your tree. It's a slow release. It, there's 70 minerals in it. So you put a pound of azomite and a pound of worm castings. You mix it all up in the wheelbarrow. And then you plant your tree. And I want you to plant your tree on the mound in the center of the hole. So that it kind of is up above grade. Because the next most important thing for you to do. So we added organic matter in the hole. Now I want you to do a basin, at least a six foot diameter woody mulch basin with at least six inches. Now I don't, when I say six inches, I don't mean two inches. I don't mean three inches. I mean six inches of woody mulch. Eight is better. 10 is even better. And you just, it's wood chips and you just put it in the basin around the tree. And over time, what happens, that interface between the dirt and the woody mulch, the soil becomes absolutely amazing. So really, the sol one of the big solutions, if you have a dirt backyard, add 6 to 12 inches of woody mulch, and then within two years, you're going to have a forest-like environment back there to be able to start growing amazing stuff. And for a backyard, I mean, you're talking bulk delivery. We're not talking, you know, cubic bag at a time. No. Although you can, we do sell it by the two cubic foot bags. And if you just have one or two trees to do, 
you know, buy it by the bag if you have a backyard full. So there's an organization out there called Chip Drop. You can find them at chipdrop.com. Um, also, I know that John Eisenhower uh, delivers woody mulch to people when they ask for it. Um, you can get a load of woody mulch. And when we say a load of woody mulch, that's like 25 cubic yards. It's not a small amount. No, you've got to be ready to apply. And, you know, you don't all have to use it all at once either. Mm -mm. No, you just have to be able to put it away. I was driving in my neighborhood today, and there was probably 10 cubic yards in somebody's driveway. I was like, oh, cool, my neighbors are into it. And uh, it was a pile that was four feet tall, six feet wide, and 12 feet long. That's a half load. So just know if you go with woody mulch that way, you're going to get a lot. So the, the adding organic matter and making sure that you plant the tree right and put the woody mulch basin around it is ultra, ultra important. Lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet. But the fruit of the woodland is impossible to eat. Lemon tree, very pretty. All right, Farmer Greg, how are we going to pack this all into the final segment here? There you go, man. I always need about three hours. <laughs> First, you know, I just really want to thank you guys for letting me come on. It's been a couple of years now, the fourth Saturday of the month, and chatting about all things edible in the desert. I just really deeply appreciate you giving me that voice. Thanks. And hopefully to encourage some of our listeners out there to plant and grow their own. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, there's a couple more things we need to talk about. Fertilizing. There's a couple of different kinds of fertilizing that we do. First, there's granular fertilizing, and we only ever do organic fertilizing. There's a long story behind that that I won't tell right now, but it's really important that we only use organic fertilizers. And so we use a granular fertilizer um, made out of chicken manure. You can imagine where that might come from. <laughs> and uh, it gets put in the basin of the tree on underneath the woody mulch uh, in February, April. So let's see, it's Valentine's Day, Tax Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. So four times we do a nice uh, granular for organic fertilizer underneath. And then we do a foliar fertilizer that is really, really important these days with the extreme heat. I've noticed this summer and last summer that my trees are struggling like they never have before. Remember, I've been growing fruit trees on my property for 31 years. And the extreme heat is really getting to the trees. So another way is called foliar fertilizing. We use fish and kelp emulsion and humic acid and those kinds of things from High Creations. They're a local company that makes it, and it gets sprayed on the leaves. So that's called foliar fertilizing. So they're taking that foliar fertilizer right in through the leaves and the trunk of the tree. It's that's super, super important these days with the heat that we have. Uh, and then shading. We absolutely need to shade the tree for the first year or two and the ground around the tree. So several ways you can do it. You can pay for shade, which is you put up a st shade structure over your tree or you can grow shade. That's the one I prefer. Plant a nice mesquite or something on the west side of your orchard. So, that, you know, to get that done, you can wrap the trunk with tree wrap. We highly recommend that. Or paint the trunk. That helps. Paint the, painting the trunk also helps with borers. So that'll, that'll help the tree thrive more. And then a thing I discovered a few years ago was 
planting a cover crop underneath the tree, something that is on the same watering system and watering schedule as your fruit trees. So once a month in the winter, twice a month in the summer, we grow sweet potatoes and cow peas Mm. underneath our, underneath, right? Mm -hmm. And underneath our trees. And that that shades the ground. I was in my front year, front yard three years ago, and I had one of those uh, uh, temperature guns. I pointed it at the ground. At ground level, On in the middle of August, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it was 140 degrees at ground level. It was 120 degrees, six inches down. Underneath the sweet potatoes, it was 89 degrees. That's enough to have your tree survive or not. I know there's a lot to it. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you're going to spend $50 on a tree, you're going to spend at least $50 on supplements and fertilizers and to make sure that you're successful with that tree. So just go into planting a tree knowing that. So sweet potatoes and what was the other one? Cow peas. Cow peas. Cow peas. Yeah, sweet potatoes you can get in most organic sweet potatoes you need to plant uh, in most grocery stores. Uh, cow peas you have to get from me. That's something I grow and give away with all my fruit now, trees. Are cow peas edible? Uh, they are when they're small. Mostly they're nitrogen fixers. What I do with them is I let them grow out. And then when they die back uh, in October, November, I just fold them in and that becomes mulch for next year. Okay. And you put them in salad or? Yeah, uh, they're, they're okay to eat. They're more of a cover crop. Cover crops okay. are nitrogen fixers for the shade and that kind of I'll stuff. I'll stick with the sweet potatoes. Then. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And you can actually harvest sweet potatoes here in the desert in the fall, and they're great. You can grow sweet potatoes here. Absolutely. I've been doing it for over 20 years. That was one of our most successful crops. Yep. Was yeah, sweet potatoes. exactly. And it, was, uh, it wasn't anything that we started from a seed. We just cut one that we had bought, yep. stuck it in a stuck it. mason jar. Yep. Once it sprouted, stuck it in the ground. And, and, we, and it grew. we had them huge. Yep. Yeah. It's that simple. Growing food in the desert is actually really simple if you know what the rules are. If you have guidelines, if you know what the rules are. I've been growing here for over 40 years. I've discovered a lot of that stuff. And we put together my fruit tree education program and we do a launch the first Saturday. Actually, this year, it's the second Saturday of September. It's going to be online this year. So we're actually doing four hours of fruit tree education on September 12th. You can find out more about that at fruittrees.org. That's my main website for the fruit tree program. And we'll have Tom Spellman from Dave Wilson Nursery on and, um, and several local celebrities and me talking about how to be successful with your fruit trees and going more in depth than all that we've talked about today. And as we wrap up the final 30 seconds, talk about all the different types of fruit trees you could plant. Oh my gosh. Apples, there's two different varieties. Peaches, about 10 different varieties. Apricots, plums, jujubes, figs, pomegranates, grapes, mulberries. Oh my God, mulberries do so good here. Um, And then citrus, you know, whatever citrus you want to grow. Grow some fruit trees, man. Farmer Greg, thanks for spending your Saturday morning. Urbanfarm.org or .com. .org. .org, okay. Urbanfarm.org. And fruittrees.org.